Um, okay, so this is electro-optics. Right, hopefully you're in the right place. People downstairs can figure out where they need to be. Um, my information's on the green sheet. I'll write it on the board in case you want to ask me a question and don't want to feel embarrassed that you forgot my name. So I'm Peter Byersdorf. Um, what we're going to do today is uh, some fluffy stuff. We'll do some introductions, uh, talk about the class procedures and grading schemes and such. What we'll cover in the course, and then we'll start with some, uh, a little bit of history. Hello? And um, a little bit of review of the wave equation, which really the wave equation is a starting point for everything we're going to do in the course. So we'll start with a very simple form of the wave equation and some simple solutions. So before we do that, repeat, uh, I'm Peter Byersdorf. My office is downstairs around the corner if you ever need to find me. I'm scheduling office hours for basically right before the class. So 5 to 6.30 is when I've scheduled them. I do reserve that last half an hour to pull myself together and get stuff over to the class. So if you want to come and talk to me about anything, feel free to. Uh, you can also usually, I'm usually available after class as well, although if I have any uh, commitments in the evening, I may have to run after the class, but you can probably find me after class as well. Um, if you need to get in touch with me, email is the best way. You can try the phone, but I'm always by a computer. We have a web page for the class, which I can't show you because I can't connect to the internet right now. But we have a web page um, through Blackboard or WebCT, if anybody has used that before. Basically, you have to log in to access it. So everybody has an account, or at least if you've registered through MySJSU, you'll have an account set up within a day or so. It's, it's an automated system. Um, login instructions are available when you go to the website. Basically, you use your student ID, and if you haven't ever used the system before, I think the uh, default password is spring, which you can change once you're logged in. The reason you have to log in is because once you're there, you can post in a discussion forum, you can view your grade, because I've got it recorded, and just make sure that uh, that's up to date. And that's where I'll post electronic copies of all the slides that I, that I give out, or that I use in class. It's also where I will um, post your homework, homework and solutions, okay? So it's up to you to go there and download the homework. We'll have homework due basically every week, so I won't specifically say in class that homework is due next Monday. It just every Monday we'll have homework due. Um, okay, so you can go to the website to find that. There's a couple textbooks. Or there's a textbook they put down as the required textbook for the course. It's Fundamentals of Photonics by Soleil and Tech. Um, this is a new textbook. I think it's uh, about a year old, or at least this edition is about a year old. And this edition. The previous edition had almost none of the material that we're going to cover in the class. So in essence, it's a new book. Okay, I like it, or at least flipping through it, I liked it a lot. Um, the last time I caught, taught this course, we used your even optical waves and crystals. I mention this because this is a good reference, and I point out at the end of all my slides, I have a list of references where you can learn about the material. A lot of the material that I'm presenting, I actually pulled out of this textbook because it's for my notes from the last time I taught the course. So I'm trying to update it to at least make the notation consistent with this. But if sometimes you see notation used that's a little different than what's in the textbook, it's probably because 
I'm using notes that I created from this textbook. Okay. Um, I think this is a much better value. They're both 100 bucks, right? but this one is like all of optics. This one is very specific. This is a very good textbook, but unless you're certain that you're going to go into a field where you're going to be doing this type of work every single day, um, you're probably better off spending your money on something more general, which is why I recommend this. Um, one caveat. I looked at the book. It looked pretty good. I read through a couple chapters, and so I ordered this. Upon reviewing it further and working out some homework problems and such, I realized that I, I'm finding a number of errors in the textbook. Okay, that always happens the first edition of any new material. So just something to be aware of. Um, I do give extra credit for people who find errors, either in my slides or in the textbook. And the way you notify me of that, a lot of you have had classes with me before and know this, but you go to the website. We have a discussion board there. There is a forum for slide corrections. So you post that you found an error, and I will review the post. And if you have found a legitimate error, and I agree with you, um, and it's something that's significant, meaning it's not just a typo, or it's something that actually has physical consequences, then you'll get uh, half a percent of extra credit towards your final grade. Okay. Okay, so um, this little paragraph describes what electro-optics is, but I'm going to skip that for the moment because uh, I'll talk about that in a couple of slides from now. Um, first, I want to tell you what to expect out of the next three months uh, if you enroll and stay in this course. We will talk about uh, propagation in bulk anisotropic materials, and really what that means is crystals. You noticed when I said the title of this book was Optical Waves in Crystals. Turns out electro-optics is pretty much how light travels through crystals. Okay. So anisotropic means uh, orientation dependent. Materials that are orientation dependent. Um, so we'll talk about that bulk propagation. We'll talk about some uh, effects and devices that use or properties of uh, the propagation through crystals. So electro-optic devices, acousto-optic devices, um, and then we'll talk about waveguides. Turns out, once you understand waveguides and you understand these electro-optic devices, you can integrate the two and do a lot of interesting things with integrated devices on chips. So you can lithographically pattern some photonic device onto a crystal. And you can build an entire optics experiment lithographically on a crystal, shine light in, have something useful come out, and control it through wires that connect to the crystal. Um, okay, so once we get through all that, we'll talk about some photonic devices, and we'll cover nonlinear optics on our, on our way there. Um, pretty much all of this stuff can be classified into a general description of what happens when the material that light is going through is not uniform and isotropic. Okay, so if you've taken an introductory optics course, you've probably always dealt with either free space, water, glass, other materials that are, uh, have no structure to them and have no orientation dependence. 
And so when you remove those two constraints, you get a lot of interesting things that happen. And this is what, what happens. Okay, so there's a lot of different terms for sort of very, or very similar terms for slightly different fields. There's electro-optics, which is nominally what this course is, um, and it covers a lot of different disciplines. So certainly optics, um, electro-optics, there's terms like optoelectronics, photonics, and quantum optics that describe sort of the same material. They all have slightly different connotations. Right? So optics is more or less um, what I described before, light going through isotropic materials that don't have structure. If you just hear a term optics or the class of optics, you should expect that you're going to talk about mirrors, lenses, beam splitters, maybe diffraction, but uh, nothing that depends on the orientation or the structure of the material. Electro-optics tends to deal with, with uh, objects which have that type of structure, and that's useful for creating devices and systems which allow the optical properties of the material to be modified by electrical signals. So that's obviously very useful in today's world where you have things like telecommunications, uh, optical computing, things where you want to interface computers, the ubiquity and the, the uh, convenience of computers with the bandwidth and the high speed of, of optical devices. Okay, so modulators, nonlinear crystals, waveguides um, are all topics that will be covered in this class. You might hear the term optoelectronics. So like electro-optics, optoelectronics, that tends to be more geared towards the electrical side of things. Photodetectors, semiconductor devices, so LEDs, laser diodes. So whereas electro-optics tends to deal with the optics that can be controlled by electronics, optoelectronics tends to deal with electronics that can produce light or detect light. couple other terms, and there is a lot of overlap here, but uh, photonics, which of course is the, basically the title of our textbook, tends to deal more with devices, more applied nature of this material. Okay, so we'll certainly deal with that. Before we deal with that though, we're going to go through um, in a fair amount of detail the background and the fundamental theory of wave propagating in anisotropic and, and uh, inhomogeneous materials. And then another term you might hear is quantum optics. Quantum optics um, tends to deal with more, uh, if, if photonics is more applied, quantum optics is more theoretical. Um, sort of tends to deal with things at the edge of scientific research. Things like uh, Bose-Einstein condensates, optical tweezers, um, and such. And we'll talk a little bit about a few of those, those types of things. Uh, it's probably worth mentioning that all of these fields have some connection to industry, particularly in the area. And if you walk over to the convention center this week, does anybody know what's going on? SPIE Photonics Quest. Right? So there's a big photonics conference um, at San Jose State Convention Center. State San Jose Convention Center. Um, I believe the floor is open to the public. You can walk around, see a bunch of different vendors, products, and such. Um, then they have technical talks, which you have to pay and register to see. But uh, if you're interested in this field, and you have some time during the day, and you're wandering around, you might stop by and just 
If nothing else, you should be able to get a free bag or pen or something. <laughs> okay, so what I expect, or what you should expect to get out of the course, um, is that you'll be able to understand the basic principles of various modulators, waveguides, and periodic media. And you'll have some basis for choosing suitable parameters when you look through a catalog to try to pick devices to put together an experiment. What I expect is that you've had some background in optics. Um, that may have been a long time ago. It may be undergrad. That's fine. Um, technically, lasers 168 is the prereq for this course. We're actually not going to do much that requires um, anything from lasers, with the possible exception of modal description of fields. That means um, we'll rely on breaking up spatial functions into orthogonal modes, basically Fourier transforms. Okay? Or in the term, in laser terminology, um, Gaussian modes. And some knowledge of plane, wa plane wave propagation. So for example, uh, Snell's law, the law of reflec reflection are things that I will take for granted that you're aware of. Uh, if you don't have a background, but you want to take the course, uh, it shouldn't be a problem. You just may need to uh, check out the notes ahead of time, see if there's anything that is unfamiliar to you, and maybe do a little bit of extra prep. So to the best of my ability, I've written out a schedule for how the semester is going to go. I'm sure this will change within a week or so. Um, but here's all the different topics that we'll be covering. And I've tried to identify the sections of the book that that will correspond to. So if you want to read ahead, you can. Um, I've left a handful of days here that are empty. It's review or catch up, review or catch up. And I expect what's going to happen is we'll fall behind and we'll end up catching up during those days. Um, there's a midterm scheduled for about halfway through the course. We'll have one midterm. And then the final is the end. Your grade will come predominantly from homework. The homework you can do in groups, as many of you together as you want. Okay, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's a very good way to do it. Um, and I'll try to include both theoretical homework where you're proving things and some applied things where you're designing an experiment or addressing the the pitfalls of a particular setup, things like that. So I try to mix it up a bit. And I already mentioned one form of extra credit, which is finding no errors in the slides or finding errors in the book. Okay, and I'll, I'll give out extra credit uh, for those things to the first person who catches any particular error. And uh, there may be more extra credit that I'll announce later on. OK, so any questions about the administrative part of the class? Uh, do I have ad codes? Uh, I can find some. Do you need them? Do you know? Yeah, okay. Uh, after class, I'll find some. I need to connect to the internet to do that. And I can't. I wasn't able to do that right now. But yes. Yeah. In fact, I've already got the first two chapters of slides up. So they're roughly broken down by chapter. So any given lecture may only be a portion of the chapter's slides. So if we spend three lectures covering chapter eight, you should expect that you can 
download chapter eight slides and then just follow that through for a couple days. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about the history of electro-optics and, and, and optical devices. It'll give us a little bit of perspective on sort of where we stand now as far as the development of this technology. Um, basically, we can break it into three parts. Early history involved just understanding, trying to understand um, some strange phenomena. And then there was the categoric uh, description of that phenomena into a set of coherent rules and laws. And then there was development, and that's what's currently going on, is the development of technologies to exploit these, these strange phenomena. So lasers, fiber optics and waveguides, photonic bandgap crystals, some of the current developments in the field. So you can go back as far as about 1670 when uh, birefringence was first discovered. Who knows what birefringence is? Yeah. So why does it split into what? What are the different parts of the light have different? Yeah. So you can see that in calcite. So this is a calcite crystal. I'll pass this around. You may have seen this before. Just set it on top of your note. It's probably the easiest way. And when you look through it, you should see two images. It's an example of birefringence, and that's the type of uh, discovery that was made by uh, Bartholomew in 1670. And then Huygens described this as a splitting of the polarization. A couple hundred years later, the ability to grow synthetic crystals was developed. So you could grow ruby. Um, this is important when you want to build lasers. For example, the first laser was a ruby laser using a synthetic crystal. In the mid-1800s, all these electromagnetic laws were being, being discovered and, and written. 1845, Faraday discovered that a block of glass with a strong magnetic field on it causes a polarization of the plane of light. We know about Faraday rotators and Faraday isolators now using this effect. About the same time, John Tyndall discovered that you could guide light. Currently, we guide light through waveguides and, and fiber optics. He used a flowing stream of water to demonstrate this. Shortly after that, Maxwell took a lot of the laws of electricity and magnetism, put them together into this, um, into this uh, set of equations known as Maxwell's equations. We'll use those a lot in this course. In the late 1800s, the care and, uh, well, the electric and magnetic care effects were discovered by John Care. In fact, that's the presence, uh, or the, the, in, the induced presence of birefringence due to an external electric or magnetic field. So that calcite you have right there has some intrinsic birefringence in it, but you can take a piece of ordinary glass and in a strong enough electric field, you can produce an effect like you have in calcite. So you can start to see how external electric fields that you might apply through voltages um, can affect the properties of the material. Um, Pockels discovered a similar effect, not necessarily producing birefringence, but a change in the index of refraction of the material in the presence of an electric field. Peter Zeeman discovered that the uh, that the atomic energy levels of sodium were shifted by an external magnetic field. Around the turn of the century, 100 years ago, uh, Voigt saw a similar phenomena. 
That's also the time that the photoelectric effect was discovered and explained by Einstein. Cotton-Mutton effect um, also was discovered at this time. An effect in liquid where the uh, index of refraction is changed by the presence of a magnetic field. So lots of different external effects or external influences being applied to different materials producing optical effects. Uh, the Bragg family discovered X-ray diffraction. X-ray diffraction and then they described it um, systematically. That description is what we'll use basically to understand propagation through periodic materials. That's very important in modern optics because most mirrors, most laser mirrors are made of, of a regular array of dielectric layers that can be described using this Bragg diffraction effect. 1916, Tchaikovsky developed a way to inexpensively and quickly grow large crystals. Okay, so here's the Tchaikovsky-grown YAG, that's uh, yttrium aluminum garnet. That one has some neodymium doped into it, and it's used as a laser rod. And that's currently the way modern crystals are made. Days. In the 1920s, the acousto-optic effect was discovered. This is um, acoustic fields interacting with light in matter. And then there was a big advancement um, just in the past 50 years with the invention of the laser and fiber optics. So in 1965, Charles Cow was the first to realize that the losses, optical losses of light propagating through glass were largely due to the impurities in the glass and that if they could be removed, you could get uh, attenuation coefficients that would allow light to travel over many kilometers through glass. In 1970, this was demonstrated in the first low-loss optical fiber. And so in the time since, low-loss optical fibers have been the standard for telecommunications and long-distance, high-bandwidth communication. Okay, the light that goes through those fibers generally comes from lasers. Those were developed about the same time. 1960, the first operational laser was produced. It was based on a ruby crystal. Shortly thereafter, a technique called periodic polling was used to phase match interaction in nonlinear materials. One of the things we'll talk about in this class is nonlinear optics. Can anyone describe in one sentence what nonlinear optics is? The two photon interaction. In short, it's you send red light in and green light comes out. Okay. Linear optics is. Uh, in short, frequency of the light traveling through materials doesn't change. In nonlinear optics, it can. And we'll describe that in much detail later on. But it's a two-photon interaction. You get the energy of two individual photons combining into one higher energy, shorter wavelength photon. In order for that to be uh, a strong effect, there needs to be very high intensity. And high intensity generally means light needs to be focused very small. That requires, essentially, lasers. It also helps to have waveguides to confine the light, waveguides or fibers. 
So until about the 1960s, uh, it was almost impossible to do any sort of nonlinear optics. So this is really a new field. And this, this idea of periodic polling was a way to allow nonlinear interactions to occur in sort of, I don't quite want to call it everyday materials, but in a much larger range of materials than those which experience or produce strong nonlinear interactions without this. Basically, the idea is that when light goes through a material, if you get this nonlinear interaction, you can convert light from, say, red to green, but then it will get converted back after a very short distance. You don't get this effect building up. Periodic polling was a way to sort of reverse the sign of the interaction every time the interaction maxed out. So instead of getting reconverted back to the original frequency, it continues to convert. Um, so I have a piece of piplin with me. Yeah, it's on this slide. Piece of periodically pulled lithium niobate. I'll pass this around. This is silicon for the nonlinear optics industry. So it is the material of choice. If you look at that, it might not look like anything special. If you, if you angle it a little bit and look at the reflection of the light, you should see a little bit of like a grading effect, a little bit of a rainbow on it. That comes from the um, etching of very fine structure, a few micron structure um, domain reversals of the crystal with a regular orientation. More recently, Blue LEDs have popped up on all of our electronic devices. They didn't exist 10 years ago. Now everything you buy has a little blue LED. Um, that was pretty much the work of one person in Japan, Shuji Nakamura. Not only did he transform sort of technology and produce the first viable blue LEDs and later blue laser diodes, he also basically single-handedly transformed the uh, market for, uh, for intellectual property in Japan in the process. So prior to that, everything that was produced was a product of a company, and he was awarded billions of dollars in a, essentially a lawsuit, changing the way that uh, intellectual property developments get rewarded. Um, development's still going on, both at the applied level and the very um, theoretical level. In the last 10 years, Lena Howe at Harvard has demonstrated that light can be slowed inside a Bose-Einstein condensate. Uh, first to about 17 meters per second, like 35 miles per hour. Uh, and later, more recently, almost two years ago, actually stopped light inside of one of these condensates and was able to restart it up in a neighboring condensate with the same quantum information imposed on the new wave packet. And that's all coming out of the basic uh, building blocks of what we'll talk about in this class. So that's probably the only history we're going to do. That's the 15-minute history of electro-optics. So I, I'd pause for questions, but I'm sure I don't have the answers for you. <laughs> and I'm not a history guy. OK, so let's do some, uh, some math and physics, which is perhaps a little bit more uh, up my alley. We're going to start with Maxwell's equations. and. Today we're going to start with them in this form. We're going to use a slightly different form uh, tomorrow or um, sort of in the next lecture, whether that ends up being, I guess that wouldn't be tomorrow. But um, Okay, so 
Maxwell's equations. Anyone remember what these are called? What's the first one is called? Okay, Gauss's law. The second one? Yes. The third one? Hamel's law. That's Gauss's law as well. Say Gauss's law for, for magnetism. And then the last one then? Ampere's law. Yeah. Um, side note. If at some point you expect to take an oral exam to get out of this program with a master's degree, you should expect to be able to write these, name them, and manipulate them. Yeah, so we'll do plenty of, plenty of the latter. Okay, so we're going to start with Maxwell's laws. Um, in this class, we're always going to make a few assumptions. We're always going to deal with materials that are non-magnetic, first of all. So mu is always going to be mu naught. Uh, I think we're always going to deal with current-free and charge-free materials as well. Okay, so that's most of your optical materials. It's anything that's optically transparent is going to be charge-free. That means we're not dealing with metals, propagation through metals or plasmas. And so if we start by taking these laws and trying to derive the wave equation, as you may have seen it in a previous optics course um, or the way it's usually presented, which is really the wave equation in isotropic material. And it may not have been explicitly stated as such, but uh, we'll see next time that it's a little different than what we get. If we uh, relax some assumptions we might not even realize we're making yet. But we'll start with Faraday's law, and we'll take the curl of both sides. So take the curl of the left side, and we'll evaluate that in a minute. We'll take the curl of the right side. There it is. And in order to evaluate this, it's useful to recognize that the curl is a spatial operator. The time derivative is a temporal operator. So we can interchange their order. And instead of taking the curl of the time rate of change of the magnetic field, we can take the time rate of change of the curl of the magnetic field. So we just bring the curl inside this derivative. And then this curl of B, we can identify here from Ampere's law and substitute in for the curl of B uh, mu naught epsilon BEBT. Over on the left side, we've got this vector calculus nightmare that we have to deal with. So today the way we'll approach that is using a, an identity that says the curl of the curl of a vector field is equal to the gradient of the divergence of the vector field minus the divergence of the gradient of the field. So we've rewritten the left side. We can rewrite the right side using Ampere's law. Plug that in there, and we get this form on the right. And on the left, we can recognize this term in parentheses as the left-hand side of one of Maxwell's equations. That's Gauss's law. So in a source-free material, del dot E is 0. Right, so this term on the left goes to 0. And then this term we write as the Laplacian of E, del squared of E. And this is what we call the wave equation. And this is how we get it from Maxwell's laws. And so we'll see in just a minute how or why this equation 
is called the wave equation, why its solutions are waves. So there's the equation. It's a second order differential equation. So remember, this is the second spatial derivative, and that has to be proportional to the second time derivative. So what kinds of functions, well, in order for that to happen, in order for the left side, which only depends on space, to equal the right side, which only depends on time, yeah, they're separable. And we can seek solutions where um, each of these sides is proportional to the original field. So the second derivative with respect to space is proportional to the original field. If the second derivative with respect to time is proportional to the original field, then they should be proportional to each other. What kinds of functions? Exponential, what other? Yeah, so trigonometric and exponential functions are the likely forms that we're going to deal with. And typically when we talk about waves, or um, you sort of imagine a wave in your head, you probably have some image of something like this that probably maps better onto your, your uh, that probably maps better onto the idea of trigonometric functions. Okay, so let's say let's say trigonometric functions are a reasonable, a reasonable trial solution, and we can write such a function that depends on space and depends on time. And this is a wave. It's a wave in the sense that as time advances, if you want to follow a point on this function that has a constant amplitude, as time advances, the position has to advance as well in order for this argument to remain constant. Therefore, for the function to remain constant. So, points on this function are going to propagate through space as time advances. Okay, so that's what we mean by it. it's a wave or a traveling wave. And as written, there's a particular frequency at which this is oscillating. We call that a plane wave. There's other possible forms that we can write. We'll do spherical waves a little bit later. But this is one possible form. And it will satisfy the wave equation. So we can take this. We can plug it in. Second time derivative is going to give us a minus omega squared out front. And the second spatial derivative is going to give us a uh, minus k squared out front. And I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to plug them in and explicitly do that on the board right now because we're going to find it much more useful to deal with the uh, exponential forms of the solution. So let's review a little bit how we can relate trigonometric and exponential functions. So Euler's identity says that e to the i theta is cosine theta plus i sine theta. And so if we have a function, like I wrote on the last slide, that looks like cosine, 
functional form is a cosine function. We could equally well write that as an exponential function and take the real part of it. We had a sine function. We could write an exponential function with the same argument, take the imaginary part, and that would give us the sine function. So we're going to frequently do that. We're generally going to treat our solutions that we deal with as exponential functions. Okay, exponential functions will satisfy the wave equation. We'll show that in a minute. And if we want to map that mathematical solution onto something that we can physically understand, we'll take the real part of it, and that will give us a trigonometric function, which then you know, can represent a change in the electric field or whatever it is that we're, we're describing as a function of space and time. Okay, so there's that uh, form for the exponential function. We're just describing a real function. Since we're going to be dealing with a lot of these, these complex functions, and everything that we're going to represent is inherently a real property, we won't always write this real part here. We'll just write functions that are complex, and anytime you see a complex function, it's understood that in order to, um, in order to get the functional form of what that actually represents in the physical world, we have to take the real part of it. Okay, just a little bit of shorthand, we'll omit the uh, real notation. Another, so here's what's inside of that bracket. So that function has some spatial dependence, some time dependence, and some phase, as well as some amplitude over here. And what we'll do is we'll take out the time dependence. We'll factor that out, so e to the minus i omega t. And then all of this amplitude and the oscillations in space and the initial phase will group into one single function here, which is, in this case, this is, represents electric field. So it's, it's an electric field that's varying as a function of space. And then the, it also varies as a function of time. We've separated out that time dependence. So this right here represents this constant amplitude, this this oscillating phase and this initial phase. Okay, and we call that a phaser. This E of R. And that's this little tilde over it denotes it as a phaser, just the way an arrow over it would denote it as a vector. So it means this is a complex function. And if we want the actual value that represents the parameter we're measuring, we have to take the, the real part of that. So this is a phaser. It has an amplitude and a phase. The phase is some value that can be anywhere between 0 and 2 pi. 
Actually, it can be any value, but modulo 2 pi, um, those are the only unique values. And so it has an amplitude and an angle between 0 and 2 pi. An amplitude and an angle. What has an amplitude and an angle? Vector. Right. So we, will, we can draw a phasor graphically the way we can draw a vector graphically. So if I wanted to draw a vector, I would probably start with some coordinate system. Maybe I'd use x and y axes and do it in the Cartesian coordinate system. If I want to draw a phasor, this itself is not a vector. Um, it's, a, it's a phasor. It has a real and an imaginary part. Those are the two components. It doesn't have an x and a y part. It has a real and an imaginary part. So. I will draw it in the complex plane. That's my, essentially my coordinate system in which I draw it. Complex plane has the horizontal axis being the real axis, the vertical axis being the imaginary axis. And then E naught is the magnitude, so it's the length of my phaser. And K dot R plus phi naught is the angle. So at different positions, this angle will change. If I travel along the direction that a wave is propagating, k dot r is going to increase linearly, and the angle of this phaser is going to continually increase, and this, this arrow will spin around the origin. Okay, the function that this represents, in our case this is representing an electric field, so if this was an electric field as a function of some spatial coordinate, if this phasor represents that, then the actual electric field is the real part of this, or the projection of this phasor onto the real axis. Okay. You relate that to vectors, it's the x component of the vector. Okay, so this is the real part of the phaser. So that's my function that represents the electric field. And as I move along in space, I expect that the field should oscillate as a wave. As I move along in space, this phase angle increases, this phaser spins around, and the real part is going to oscillate back and forth. Okay, so this notation represents the same physical effect that's going on in the standard functional form notation. The reason we use it is because there's a lot of mathematical shortcuts we can do when we're dealing with exponents rather than dealing with trigonometric functions. Okay, so let's see some of those shortcuts. Um, first one, we're going to be doing a lot of differential equations in this class. Um, and so taking the derivative, integrating, 
and then uh, solving differential equations are important mathematical steps that we're going to do. When we deal with phasers, this is the phasor form of a plane wave. If we take the time derivative of the phasor, on the left side, there's only one term here that depends on time. So the E naught stays out in front. E to the I times some value. When we take the time derivative, we get the time derivative of this argument. Well, the time derivative of this argument is I times omega. So that comes out in front. And then the exponential remains unchanged. So the time derivative of this phasor is I omega times the original phasor. So the time derivative is I omega times the phasor. What that means is anytime we have an expression that has a time derivative in it, if our solutions, if our waveforms that we're using are plane waves that rep are represented by phasors, we can replace these time derivatives with I omega. Uh, likewise, the spatial derivative, okay, so the divergence here of the vector field, remember, is the spatial derivative with respect to each coordinate. And if I take the spatial derivative, so k dot r is like, I don't have it written out e to the i k dot r yeah, plus omega t is equal to e to the i in Cartesian coordinates kxx um, plus kyy plus kzz plus omega t. So if I want to take the derivative of this with respect to x, I just get an i kx coming out in front. i times kx. When I take the derivative with respect to y, I get an i times a ky coming out in front. With respect to z, I get an i times kz coming out in front. So kx times i plus ky times j plus kz times k hat. This is my k vector right here, this term in parentheses. The x component in the x direction, the y component in the y direction, the z component in the z direction. So this is the k vector. So I can write i times k dotted with the original function. So my divergence becomes ik dot the function. So in other words, this del operator becomes ik. This is a vector. k is a vector. So this, is, this shows that for the divergence. It works with the gradient as well. Um, and you'll be asked to show that in the homework, first homework, which is due, I think, February 2nd, next Monday? Yeah, it's due February 2nd. Okay, so whenever we see a time derivative, we can replace that with I omega. Whenever we see a del operator, we can replace that with I k. And as long as we're using phasors, we can convert equations that have uh, these differential forms into ordinary equations very useful for solving differential equations. If you have the time derivative equals, or it's proportional to the value of a quantity, that's a differential equation. 
we can convert it to an ordinary equation, we can solve it much more easily just using ordinary algebra. Okay, of course, not all waves that we're going to want to deal with are plane waves that can be described by, um, by a single frequency and a single wave vector. Okay, there are waveforms that have some uh, temporal shape and have some, some spatial distribution to them that prevent them from being described as plane waves. But you can always describe any arbitrary electric field or any, any arbitrary function as the superposition of a number of orthogonal functions. And in this case, plane waves are orthogonal functions. So we can say any given waveform can be broken down into a number of plane waves that are overlapping. So this is the amplitude of a given plane wave at frequency, spatial frequency k. That plane wave has a particular spatial frequency, therefore it has a particular temporal frequency. And for different values of k, there will be different frequencies and different amounts of that mixing. And so when we add up all the different frequencies that make up the wave with all their different relative amplitudes, we can add them up to get any arbitrary waveform that we want. Okay, so if we know how a uh, individual plane wave component behaves in a material, we can figure out how any arbitrary waveform will behave in the material. Okay, now I said if you know a particular spatial frequency k, then there's a certain uh, temporal frequency associated with it. Omega is ck over n. You'll recall that from the previous optics course. So it may seem that for any given k, you have a defined spatial frequency. However, n is the index of refraction of the material. That may be a function of wavelength. So this may not be a strict proportionality between omega and k. n may itself depend on wavelength or depend on k. It may depend on orientation of the material. Okay, so plane waves are a very simple solution that we can use to construct more complex waveforms. One of the waveforms that we in uh, modern optics where we have laser beams is beams. So what is, what is a beam? When I say beam, what comes to mind? Doesn't diverge. So it's spatially confined. Let's go back a step. What is a plane wave? What are the properties of a plane wave? How do they differ from that of a beam? plane wave is a whole plane. The wave fronts are planar. So they extend to infinity. And every wavelength, there's another wave front. And the whole thing propagates along in a certain direction. The direction they propagate is orthogonal to the wave front. Since the wave fronts go on to infinity, that defines a specific direction. So a plane wave can be thought of as having infinite extent and uh, zero spread in direction. If you like, 
infinite extent, zero spread in its direction. Right? Direction determines the momentum. Right? So a beam, on the other hand, does not have infinite extent, it has a confined extent. Smaller spatial extent means a larger spread in its direction. So unlike a plane wave, a beam can't be described by just a, a direction. It actually it spreads out. We'll deal with beams that spread out slowly. Okay? Slowly means the change in its spatial profile is small compared to small over the distance of a wavelength. So here's a picture of some beams. So here's some oscillation, say, in the electric field. And it may be varying in time or space, but those variations are small compared to the uh, small over the time, time scale of, of one optical cycle. And the wave fronts tend to spread out. But again, the shape of the beams is uh, varying slowly over individual wavelengths. So those are the parameters for what we call a paraxial beam or a paraxial wave. And given those assumptions, we can uh, find a solution to the wave equation, which will be uh, specific for those assumptions. Okay, so um, let's write our waveform, our electric field as it propagates through space and time. And for concreteness, I'll do this in Cartesian coordinates. So x, y, z, and time. And let's say it's propagating in the z direction. So I've got some oscillation in z, a phasor that's cycling through um, a full cycle every time z increases by one wavelength. And then there's some spatial profile to the beam. Okay, so at any point on the beam's wavefront, if I go forward in z by a wavelength, the waveform will repeat itself. Okay, but the amplitude and phase of the waveform up here may be different than it is down here. So there may be some spatial profile, and that's described by this function uh, e of x and y. So this is like an amplitude for a plane wave, but that amplitude is varying in x and y. Okay, and in fact, it also has to vary in z. If this beam can spread out, its power must be spreading out. It must be becoming less intense. Its amplitude must be getting smaller as it spreads out. So there is also, although it's not explicitly written, there's a slow variation in z. Okay, we say the envelope of this wave is slowly varying. So we'll use an approximation in a minute called the slowly varying envelope approximation. Okay, so we'll take this form of a solution. This is our sort of proposed solution, and we'll plug it into the wave equation, and we'll see what comes out. On the left side, I have the second spatial derivative, and I'm going to separate that into two parts. The second spatial derivative with respect to z of my solution, and then the second spatial derivative with respect to x and y, which I've written as the, the transverse Laplacian. So if 
This operator here is called the Laplacian and represents the second derivative in x, y, and z. The transverse Laplacian is the second derivative in x and y in this case, in the transverse direction. Okay, and the reason I'm doing that is because there's this fast variation along z, this optical variation, this uh, high-frequency optical cycling that goes along z that's absent in x and y. Okay, so um, the results of these two derivatives are going to be physically very different. So I'm going to break them into the two parts. And for the moment, I'm pretty much going to ignore this term here, and I'm going to evaluate what this first term is. Over on the right, I'm using the fact that um, when I take the time derivative of this, I haven't explicitly written the time derivative or the time temporal function, but um, I'm assuming there's a, an oscillatory an e to the i omega t on here, as, as I do with all my phasers. I assume that there is a, a temporal variation. And because I'm dealing with phasers, I can replace this time derivative with i omega. And there's two time derivatives. So I get two factors of i that gives me a minus one, two factors of omega that gives me the omega squared. So I've just simplified the right side a little bit, and I've separated the left side into two parts. I'm going to ignore this part for now, leave it as it is, and work on this left term. Okay, so I have the second space, the second derivative with respect to z of a function which varies slowly with z and a function which varies rapidly with z. Okay, so remember, k is a large number. It's 2 pi over a wavelength. So optical wavelengths are, are small on the, uh, on the scale of how rapid, how rapid this varies. Okay, so the second derivative with respect to z, I have to use the product rule. I have the first function and the second function. So let me evaluate one derivative first. So I'll leave one derivative unevaluated. And then the term in parentheses here will be the first derivative of this product. So the first function times the derivative of the second plus the second function times the derivative of the first. That's the product rule. Recall that when taking the derivative of e to the i k z, I just get the i k popping out. Right? Just like I had when I was doing the general form of the uh, spatial derivative. So I have an ik popping out. Now I can take the derivative of this term in parentheses to get my final expression. So again, I have the product of two quantities here and the product of two quantities here. So I have to apply the product rule to the left term and to the right term. Okay, so these, these first two terms are the derivative of this using the product rule. So I have the first function times the derivative of the second. I get another ik popping out. That gives me the minus k squared. Plus the second function, right there, times the derivative of the first. I don't know the functional form of this profile, the spatial profile, so I'll just leave it as, I'll leave it unevaluated. And then I do the same thing for the second term. I use the product rule, take the first function times the derivative of the second. That derivative of the second is the second derivative 
of the envelope, where E naught of x and y is the spatial profile or the envelope of this function, plus the second function times the derivative of the first. The derivative of the first brings an i k out. So that's just uh, basic calculus. I can then recognize that this term and this term are identical. Right? They're both ik e to the ikz times the derivative of the, of the envelope. So I can combine them. Say that there's two of those terms. Um, this term over here has a minus k squared that I bring down. Every term has a e naught e to the ikz. So I'm factoring that out. E naught e to the ikz. It's, it's not factored out of, you're right, of these two. So there should be parentheses times an e naught e to the ikz on those first two terms. And then there's the, the term that I never evaluated and the right side. And there's one term that I didn't account for, which was this one. I'm ignoring that. That's why this is approximately equal to. I'm ignoring this term. I'm saying that um, the second derivative of this slowly varying envelope is small. It's not changing rapidly. That was one of my assumptions, is that this waveform, this is the spatial profile of the waveform, isn't changing rapidly over a wavelength. And so it's small compared to K is 2 pi over a wavelength. So this is how much the field changes as a function of z. I'm comparing it to uh, 2 pi in one wavelength. And so if this term is small, I will neglect it. And that leaves me with this approximate equation, which is valid in the paraxial regime. Right here. Well, the first derivative is less than k. k is, uh, is 2 pi over wavelength, so it's dimensions of uh, angle over a distance. And this is over distance. This term here, uh, I can compare to um, this term. The difference is, uh, if I take this quantity right here, and I multiply it by k, I get this term. If I multiply it, if I take the, the spatial derivative, I get this one. Okay, so I'm sort of going up a step and applying that. Okay, so that is an approximate equation which is valid for paraxial waves. I've rewritten it here. Actually, that's not the approximate. That's my original starting equation. Here's my rewritten. Oh, sometimes in an advanced slide, I expect more change than that. Here's the rewritten form of that paraxial wave equation. The 
original wave equation looks like this. Right? And using my shortcuts for phasor solutions, this looks like minus k squared e equals minus mu epsilon omega squared e. Okay, so when we're using phasors, this wave function is equivalent to this wave function. Okay, so this is the wave function, just in a slightly different form. I'll just remind you of that. This is an exact expression. This is an approximate expression. But what we can see is that um, this approximate expression has this term on the left, and it has this term on the right. So those cancel, meaning these two terms have to add up to be approximately 0. Okay, so we call this the Helmholtz equation. It's the wave equation written for phasors. Then we call this the paraxial Helmholtz equation. It says that um, you have a paraxial beam. This condition will be met. So it's telling me about the spread of the um, transverse beam profile in space as the beam goes along. It's telling you how the beam spreads out. Um, yeah, so we can, there's a lot we can do with this. Um, we will use this to investigate various solutions to look at the uh, coupling of different modes in waveguides to look at how um, different polarization states change inside of crystals. Um, we'll do all that in future classes. We're not going to actually apply this today, but we're just laying the, the groundwork so that in the future I'll mention the paraxial Helmholtz equation. We'll start with this and then we'll apply it to a number of different things. Any questions? Okay, so what do we do? We, uh, we passed out green sheets. If you showed up late, I have extra green sheets that you can take a look at. Um, before next class, please go to the class website and uh, just familiarize yourself with what's there. The most important two things are going to be the homework to download. That'll be due on Monday. And then the uh, lecture notes you might want to have. If you want to review those, they're available there. Uh, we talked a little bit about the history of electro-optics. Uh, it's, it's, it's a long history, like a lot of things in physics, but there's actually a lot of modern developments being done in this field, and there's certainly a lot of modern applications of this. So uh, much more, well, say much more, but there's direct applications between this and sort of uh, you know, modern work being done in Silicon Valley. Um, and there's also a lot of very uh, much more theoretical work that, that still relies on a lot of this. And so what I hope to do in the future is uh, if you look at the, the schedule of activities, we've got all this content that's basically pulled out of the book where we're going to be 
reviewing and, and deriving equations and such. And then we'll have a lecture on applications. And so I'll try to outline how all of this stuff is being applied, either in some modern device or some interesting physics experiment that's being done that's sort of on the cutting edge. Um, and uh, yeah, so if you look through and you notice that there's days where there's no reading assigned, that's, that's what those days are. Okay, that's all for today. I can. Yeah, and if you don't get an email from me in the next hour, you should email me to remind me. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. You have all of them. There's no difference as far as you're concerned. Uh, 70 is an accelerated version of 50 for the, for the lecture, but for the lab, it's, it's the same. Yeah. There's only a handful of 70 students, but every lab has one space reserved for one of them because they physically have to register differently. So if you. So I have a 70. I have two 70 labs, right? Well, really what they are is you have, two, you have two labs. Each one should have like 19 spaces reserved for 50 students and one space reserved for 70 students. They get funding, you don't register for classes? Is that how it works? Yeah, I talked to my manager uh, this weekend. There was, I want to take cluster mechanics as well, but she said probably too early during the day. Because I work up in the city, so it takes a while. Yeah. Um, so you know what the deadlines are for if you do want to add? Or? Uh, it's like three weeks or so for an hour. I don't know. I have it written somewhere, but, uh, but yeah. as long as you know what that deadline is, it's fine. Um, what you want to do with the hold? Uh, it's up to you. There's a form I can sign. There's no reason you should have a hold. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're not even a student, right? So. Yeah. But. Okay. Cool. Sounds good. So I'll keep in touch with that. Um, I'll probably make it when well, I can and if I have to take classes. Oh, you're still closing in the That's the plan. Yeah. In fact, I, we just recorded our conversation because I, 